You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Jacob Fennick, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast again, mate. No worries. Yeah, thanks very much for having me back on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm putting you through the, the pain again of recording another podcast, but we're talking about something cool, which is 10 ways to save at tax time. And you're going to give us some interesting ideas around each of kind of these key buckets for people. So we're talking everything from people that invest in property or shares, people who are PAYG, people who maybe have their own small business, working from home, all of those things. But before we get into that, mate, I just want to ask you if you have any tax jokes. Um, I asked you to prepare two ahead of today's, I guess, how do I put this, grand reveal of tax jokes. So <laughs> let's just hear them straight out, mate. What have you got for us? So one, the first is cheating because I know I've already told you this, but um, we can pretend I haven't. So the easiest way to teach your kids about tax is to eat half of their ice cream. Uh, <laughs> I don't have kids myself, so I don't know how quite that would go down if you were to do that tonight at least, but help them build their tax skills. The yep. second one is very cringeworthy, but I'll try not to butcher it. I just heard that atheists are trying to get tax-exempt status in Australia. They're claiming they're a non-profit organisation. <laughs> so you can, you can fake laugh at that one too. <laughs> that's a real but, laugh. That's uh, a real yeah, laugh. <laughs> but that's a, I particularly like the first one. I like the first one because if you eat, say, a third of their ice cream, the idea is that that would be a third you know, that goes to the tax man, right? Mm -hmm. I think so. So it's a joke and it's, you know, a good way to teach kids. And you get ice cream. I like it. Cool, mate. I like it. So we've got some ideas for people here about ways to kind of save on tax or at least try and think about your tax um, in a way that makes sense for you. When Jacob and I talk about this, 
the, the AirTax team at PwC, we'll put links in the show notes, have heaps and heaps of you know updates and articles on this. So you can go and find out all this stuff on their website. So we'll put links in the show notes. But Jacob and I just want to make sure that you understand that even when we talk about tax, we're talking about in a point in time. Tax rules change all the time. Our last episode was about the changes to tax and there was heaps of them. And also, we don't know everyone's situation. So even though Jacob and I are talking about kind of creative ways to think about tax and try and get that bill down as best you can, it's important to remember that everyone's situation is different. So go and speak to a tax agent before you implement any of these plans. Like I think a really good one is, you know, we've got those instant asset write-offs for a lot of people at the moment, but that might not be appropriate for everyone. So make sure you get that expert counsel before you go and implement anything that we talk about today, because there could be better ways for you to save money or make money um, depending on your situation. And we just don't know what that is. So without further ado, Jacob, I would like to um, pick your brain. One tax time tip for businesses. What have you got for us, mate? Yeah, I think businesses is a, an interesting one. And I think when we talk about businesses, I'm probably coming more at the, the small business sole trader angle. Yep. So I would say definitely what we see when we are helping either with individuals that are running their own business or yeah, or either just starting out as sole traders. I think, and this, I don't want it to sound too boring. It is super crucial and I think getting ahead of the game when you are starting out is an even bigger point. So strong record keeping is just fundamental. Whether it's, I think what people kind of, the excitement of starting a business is awesome and jumping into how you're going to build, whether it's customers or revenue, whatever it might be, that takes the majority of people's attention because obviously you want to you want to start out, you want to jump straight into it. But having like a, a formulaic or at least relatively formulaic way that you're tracking your revenue and your expenses throughout the year rather than getting to tax time, which is when a lot of people think of it and start working backwards. Mm. So I think that is the first to, to really have a strong basis of how you are doing that, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet, whether it's actually working with, say, a tax agent during the year as well as at the end of the year. I think that's where we see a lot of success with particularly small businesses too. Mm. So that would be my first. The second is, I mean, this is something we talked to in the previous session as well, but have knowledge of what the incentives are out there. There's a heap of small business incentives, whether it be like increased depreciation, at a specific tax one, but there's also grants. So, yeah, I think be aware of those. Be willing to put in at least like a lot of them, you do need to make sure that they're relevant to you. So whether that's yourself working through that or it's a tax agent again, I think just doing some some homework on what they are and how you qualify is super important, particularly in those early days. If you can be boosting, let's call it revenue, by any of the tax incentives or even just cash incentives, I think that's huge. So be knowledgeable about what they are and how to get them. And I think that's, at least in your first year, is a big one um, when you're starting out. The final one, um, and we can come back to either of those as well, is understand the structure that you want to um, get into as well. So don't necessarily be chatting to say someone that's um, also a small business owner and think, okay, he's say incorporated himself. So he's gone down the formal route of setting up the business um, and everything else and therefore automatically think that that's relevant to you. I think get some specific advice around if you are just starting out as a sole trader, maybe the sole trader piece um, is the simplest and best for you. So all I want to say on that, because it is, I mean, it's a complex area, but it's really important to Basically, pick a structure with the help of someone that best fits your circumstance because you can very quickly kind of, I suppose, set up additional pieces that might just be more burdensome in the long term. So you can always kind of transition depending on 
how your business is going at a point in time. But um, a lot of the more, I suppose, specific structures have, then again, specific tax filings and you might be dealing then with ASIC and the ATO. So I think just, yeah, definitely before you are jumping straight into business, work out what the best structure is for you. Yeah, I think that's super important. I think a lot of people, particularly people that are thinking about doing like side hustles and those side hustles, you know, start off small, they think, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll just do it. Um, And that's great. And you should always follow your passion and that's probably where it should start. But at the same time, getting, you know, even just a little bit of advice at the beginning to set up correctly is really important. Um, I will also just reflect on one thing there from my personal experience is when we started Rask. When I started Rask, we over-engineered it. We had about three corporate entities, a trust, all this stuff because we thought, well, this business should be separate to that business. If we ever wanted to sell this one, we should do that. But I think that was kind of just like the wrong way to go about it. I think maybe just getting a different opinion on that would have been really smart early on. So that's definitely um, my mistake and something I wish I had known. How about, mate, if we talk about people that are investing in shares or ETFs? On this show, we talk a lot about ETFs in particular, because they're kind of uh, an easy vehicle for beginners, but even shares, like what are some things that people can do around tax time if they are investors in these types of things? Sure. So I think um, the first one definitely off the top is look at what platform, so how you're tracking your shares, whether it's, there's a million different ways out there. And I know you definitely talk about some of these on the show, but particularly at tax time, what I've seen is there is a hundred different ways that you can be presented the information depending on what platform you're using or how you're tracking it yourself. So if you are using a platform that kind of issues, say, a tax statement at the end of the year, I would almost, before you're, you're, you're picking and choosing which one you are investing in, I would be going through and having a look at how the information or even requesting how the information um, might be presented at tax time because all I mean by that is sometimes you can get a booklet that's 100 pages long and that's no exaggeration, 100 pages long that you're then trying to decipher at tax time, even if you've just made a, a couple of trades during the year, what your say your cost base might be, and what the the sales proceeds say for shares that you've sold is at the end of the year to try and work out what you're reporting in your return. So I think there's some really creative ways out there and kind of great presentations for companies that actually kind of put forward that information around what's necessary for your return. But I think before you are doing any sort of investing work out the best platform and probably the the most straightforward presentation because it can be difficult once again to work backwards to try and find that information if it's not easily accessible. I think that's a big one for investors is just understanding all the different bits of paperwork and what actually goes on tax time. Obviously, you've got to record any income that you earn as well as any kind of gains or losses on sales, um, which also can get complicated as we mentioned last time around whether it's a short-term gain or whether it's a long-term gain and the same for losses. You know, we've talked about share site and even most brokers these days provide basic tax reporting, but sometimes it's still better to keep your own your own files and records. So um, good tip, mate. What about, have you got anything else for, for investors in shares and ETFs? Um, I would say overall, definitely just a, a knowledge of the rules. Like there can be a big difference between holding a share for um, 364 days to <laughs> 360, uh, 67 days, for instance. So and, and that's around the 50% discount. So no rules like that in terms of holding a share, say, for, for 12 months um, or longer to, to qualify for the 50% reduction is, is really important. It might be a lot of the thing, it might be something that the audience is completely aware of and great. Um, but for anyone else, 
yeah, just knowledge of the rules um, is is a big one. And I totally agree. You know, a big one is if people are, I think when people are thinking about investing and we, they often think that investing is the same thing as trading, which in my experience is totally not the case. And one of the reasons that trading, in my opinion, does not work is that every time you buy or sell, there is a capital gain or loss that is incurred. Um, whereas with long-term investing, yes, you pay the capital gains tax or loss, but sometimes there is a discount for, for example, for holding it for more than a year, uh, your investment. So that's just something that is super powerful as well as we also have um, franking credits in the share market, which also pass through ETFs. So we've talked about those on the show. We'll leave it there. But um, there's another really interesting angle here, Jacob, which is something that we don't talk about a lot, which is property investing. So people that might have like a rental property or even if they're primary residents, i.e. their home, they own that, um, but they don't understand the tax implications. So around tax time, what are some things that people should be mindful of? Yeah, the, the first one might be a bit different, um, and I wanted to try and think of something that people may not have had, uh, say, a heap of exposure to. But it, and you alluded to it there in terms of your main residence, Australia is quite unique in terms of the tax law around what you can actually do with the property that you've previously lived in. And one of those, um, I suppose, quite specific rules is that you're able to rent out a property that you've lived in. So you. You've lived in it for a period, you've established it as your main residence, whether or not you say move overseas or you move location, say into a rental property even, that you're actually not the landlord of, you're just renting in general. You can rent out a previous main residence that you've lived in for up to six years and not subject that property then to capital gains tax when you come to sell it. So it's a pretty big window for, say, gains on a property that you would usually be subject to capital gains tax on if you've previously lived in it. Um, you can rent it out for up to six years and then, say, even move back into it um, and start that clock again. So that's, a, a, once again, it's a specific one, but I think it's underutilized. And I think it's it's one where yeah, it's quite unique in terms of like taxes in general. Um, Australia has some really convenient rules around main residence and, and how it kind of, um, you can limit your tax on your on your property. So, yeah, I'm not sure if you want to talk about that one um, any further so jacob if i so i bought a house um we're just talking about this off air i bought a house less than 12 months ago now um i've been living in it ever since so if i lived in that for the next six years under the current rules as they are today um, i could then rent that out for a period of time and then if i sold it it would still fall under that uh, let's say i rented it out for a year so i lived in it for six years rent it out for a year and then i sell it that would still fall under the primary residence capital gains tax exemption. Is that right? Yeah. And and so you have to, I mean, there's no exact number of months or years that you have to live in a property to make it necessarily a main residence. So we could say, I mean, usually a good rule of thumb is at least six to 12 months where you've been living in the property. But what then you can do, so say you've lived in that property for 12 months, you can then rent it out for up to six years, which is a, a huge window really. If you don't say it and you're renting another property yourself, you're not owning it um, and classifying that as your main residence because you can only have uh, one. Okay. Yeah. But you can live in it for 12 months, then rent it out for up to six years and exempt um, right. the entirety of any gain made on that property. So it's, it's a big one. Yeah, right. Okay. That's really interesting. I, I don't know why, but I didn't know that. That's um that's really interesting. So cool. Okay. But there's also just, I know this, we, you didn't put this in your notes or I can't say it in the notes anyway, but you can't have your primary residence rule and then rent it out for Airbnb for a year, can you? Like let's say if you own, you bought an apartment and then you moved back in with your parents 
if I rented, if I only owned that place for a year and the whole time it was, you know, Airbnb, even though I could say it's my home, it's not actually the right structure for tax reasons, is it? Like you wouldn't be eligible for that exemption, would you? Yeah, I think this is a super relevant to point, Owen, that you need to, particularly with less formalized like rental structures like Airbnb as a platform, which I think is awesome. And it's such a good vehicle for people to generate cash flow. I suppose, I mean, it's becoming more and more common, but through, say, rooms in their house or even the entirety of their house as well, even if people that are wanting to travel as well that can kind of put up their property on Airbnb. I, what I would say to your point, though, is to work out what the tax impact of either renting the entirety of the property is or even renting a room. Because what you can do is actually subject a property that you've been renting even a room out um, depending on, and this is quite complex as well, but um, depending on how long you've been renting it and and whether or not you've actually had other people living in it, say, or living in it yourself, subject at least a part of the property to main residence or to capital gains tax, I should say. So I suppose breaking it down, the first part is in order to, class, to, to qualify for the main residence exemption, you have to have lived in the property prior to renting it out is a really important piece. Even if you don't have another main residence, if you've just never, if you've been living at mum and dad's and you've never actually lived in that property yourself, um, and that means like physically living in it, it doesn't mean just really basically changing it, say your mailing address um, is a common question we get. <laughs> <laughs> it means you have to physically be living in that property. You may not necessarily classify uh, or qualify for the main residence exemption, even if you don't have another one out there. Um, so yeah, I think there's a couple of things um, that we could, we could, breakdown further but i might just leave it there yeah it's worth getting some doing some homework getting potentially some advice on it particularly for something as big of a, as an investment as a property but certainly making the most of the main resident exemption where it is applicable because it's yeah. it's a huge one for sure that's that's a that's the thing we're talking about some interesting things here like if you're investing in a, in property or you own a property you get the right advice because it could save you a heck of a lot of money come tax time. So the next category, which I'm hoping you can help us out with, is basically people who are on PAYG. They We, we use the, the term PAYG. It just means pay as you go. Um, it basically means your employer is taking your tax out for you. And you would be a PAYG employee um, if you are a full-time employee. If um, you have a contract, they should be like a permanent contract. They should be putting your super in for you. They should be withholding your tax, et cetera, et cetera. So you would know at the end of the year, you're going to get a statement from your employer to say how much tax you've paid throughout the year, what your earnings were, et cetera. Nowadays, Jacob, if I'm not mistaken, most of these things are automated um, through to the ATO portal, but um, so you can access it on MyGov. But um, what are some tips for uh, people that might be on pay-as-you-go or PAYG? Yeah, definitely. Um, so as you mentioned, for employees, uh, a couple of years ago, there was basically that transition to single touch payroll. So you don't you don't get that old school form that we're both used to. Yeah, um, we used to get a couple of years um, in the uh, like a, a print out of that. Um, generally speaking, it'll be on an employee portal as well as say your MyGov or your, your tax agent um, has access to it as well. I suppose my my big point um, for people that say, have um, big deductions that they're claiming at tax time. They might have a negatively geared rental property, whatever it might be, something where we're talking about substantial deductions where you're getting cash back at the end of the year. If you want to improve your cash flow, um, you can actually vary the withholdings that are applied, say, whether it's fortnightly or monthly, each time you've pay, uh, you're, you're being paid based on 
um, deductions that you would claim at the end of the year. So all I mean by that is you can kind of smooth out those deductions to reduce your withholding and increase your net pay that you're getting monthly or fortnightly, as we said, rather than getting that big refund back at tax time as well. Jacob, so so you're saying you can say to your employer, take a less tax out for me. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So basically, and and, and oh, when I say basically, exactly, um, I think... It's, it's worth having a look at, I mean, either whether it's jumping on the ATO website or having a look around varying PAYG because, once again, there's specific rules on, on how you do it and when it's relevant. But exactly as you said, you can increase your net income each time you're paid rather than getting that lump sum. Some people like that lump sum too, Owen. It's like almost forced savings at the end come tax time that they enjoy getting that back. They um, they might use it, say, to top up their superannuation or they might use it either for even like a holiday account as well. Who knows? Um, there's a million different ways they could. So it may not necessarily suit everyone, but you can potentially smooth that out during the year to, yeah, as we said, avoid that big chunk at the end and kind of get the, the benefit of that throughout the year. Yeah, cool. I really like that. I didn't know that. So, uh, I mean, I know that that's the way it kind of works, but I didn't know you could actually bury it so well and so easily. So awesome, mate. Um, how about our fifth category, which is retirees? So we, we we have a lot of younger people that listen to this show. So anywhere between, you know, just starting out thinking about money right up until say 45. But then we also have people like when we have events, which are heaps of fun. Um, and I'm so looking forward to getting back to doing some more. When we have our events, there are a lot of people that are in retirement or thinking about retirement and they're investors and they're learning about money and just better ways to spend and save. What might be some ideas that you have for people who are retire, retired or near retirement um, this tax time? Yeah, so I think um, there's a couple. So one, particularly what I see for retirees overall is a need to properly plan their cash flow. So to help kind of chat further to that, all I mean is that there's a lot of things that kind of get band-aided across when you are earning income in general. As soon as like a main source, whether you're an employer or a sole trader and you're kind of coming to the end of the process looking forward to those retirement years, you want to know and you want to plan out what your superannuation looks like. You want to know the balance. A lot of people, crazily enough, don't even know how much is in their super. Um, Mm. So definitely when you come to um, the years just before retiring or, um, I mean, best case as you go, be planning out what your super balance is and, and how much you're looking to retire on. Um, because generally speaking, I mean, there's a lot of tax concessions around the, the the cash that you're getting from your super fund once you do retire, when you have to meet requirements around age and, and certain things. But um, yeah, plan your cash flow because you can't band-aid it across that you might have with a, a salary that you're thinking are, oh, um, there's expenses there. I, I, can't, I don't necessarily need to track them each month because I've got a, re- a regular salary coming in. Um, I think once you get to retirement age, um, it's something you probably look at in your 20s and 30s when you're looking to say buy that initial house and, and start um, creating a budget and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's definitely worth redoing that um, when you are either coming close to or having retired um, to help look at what your your income and your expenses are outside of just a salary where you've um, you've been used to receiving that. Um, the second thing, and this is a minor point as well, but it does definitely, I've seen questions on it, is if you've got, say, like a really basic hobby that you are earning income from, um, depending on how you're going about it. Um, so if it's just a really basic, like you're, um, you might be uh, creating small, selling things online that you have to, say, declare um, it at tax time, or you might just be completely irrelevant to kind of profit 
um, generating mm. things. You might just mm. be um, making small things and um, and and selling like them on the side. Um, yeah, exactly. There could be some different tax implications around what you're doing, and you may not necessarily need to be declaring everything. So, I would get um, yeah some not necessarily proper advice. It doesn't need to be overly formal, but um, at least have a chat to someone that that knows the, the ins and outs um, that can sell you if you need to be declaring that or if it's just hobby-based um, and there's nothing that needs to necessarily be filed with the tax office in relation to what you're doing. Cool. I like it. Yeah, a lot of people I know that um, transition into retirement, um, like a lot of, uh, I, know I can think of one carpenter off the top of my head who's transitioned to woodwork and, and making really nice like intricate boxes uh, and a really nice timber that um, he can sell. And it's just a hobby for him, but it also happens to make some income. So there's a lot of people in that situation, like a lot of people go into things like uh, crafts and uh, pick up different things on the side. And some people just want to work as well in retirement, pick up a few days here and there, just just being involved in the community. How about um, sole traders? You mentioned it at the top of the show that businesses, um, like your, I guess, principal focus and, and your um, bread and butter at AirTax is like small businesses, small and medium businesses, but also individuals. But sole traders are kind of somewhere in between individuals and small businesses. So if, they've, if someone's out there that's a sole trader, Maybe they have another job, maybe they don't. What would be something that they can think about come tax time? Yeah, so I think there's a couple here, a um, couple of quick wins. So one, um, and this is something we mentioned in the, the previous podcast as well, but when you're looking at whether or not you need to register for GST, when you're coming up to the threshold, so that 75K threshold on income, you don't need to uh, include salary and wages that you've earned as an employee. So I want to really just kind of recap on that one. I know we've chatted to it previously, but it's a big one. Don't necessarily register for GST where you don't need to um, because it can kind of be an, an admin burden. And if you do need to kind of um, keep up to date with your, your business activity statements, because that's another one, it's actually quite hard to go backwards um, and, and bring yourself up to speed when you don't necessarily, I mean, whether it's record keeping or otherwise, when you're trying to work out quarterly what your revenue and expenses were. A lot of people have an idea around um, the yearly amounts, but I would say definitely don't fall behind with your business activity statements, which I know sounds simple, but it's one we see all the time. Um, so that's a big one. Only register for GST if you need to know what kind of uh, makes up that 75K. Um, and if you do need to keep up to date. The, the other one is there's a big difference between tax time as a sole trader and tax time as an employee in terms of what can be cash flow implications. So all I mean by that is you might say it's your first year starting out as a sole trader and you're doing, whether it's a small business or some, some consulting, say, on the side, you're not going to have withholdings on those amounts that you're earning necessarily. You might just be invoicing the business that you're working for. Um, you might be selling items um, outright and you're, you're collecting kind of your um, – you're, you're issuing receipts and, and collecting cash, but you're not necessarily paying any tax at that point. When you then, as a sole trader, when you come to file your tax return, um, if you are making a profit, which, um, I mean, hopefully, at least when you've, you've been doing it for a little while, you can come to a point where you are making a profit would be the idea. You're necessarily then going to have to pay tax come tax time, which is very different to an employer that's had withholdings during the year. The ATO may, after you've, say, been trading for the first year or, or going forward, put you on installments, which all that means is that you can pay your tax, say, annually or, or quarterly um, based on your your profit, say, from last year is the easiest way to think about it. But until you've got that kind of process in the works, 
if you haven't been paying tax during the year, you, you're going to have have to pay tax at tax time. So be parking, say, whether it's, I don't know, 30 40% of the expected profit, just be putting that aside. Even if you don't use all of it when you when you actually do come to file your return, it's a good safety net rather than having to foot the bill in a lump sum when you come to file that return. Yeah, it's so important. I see so many people that start out in business that don't put money aside for tax. With most good business banks these days, you can set up separate savings accounts for nothing. Um, you can just attach them to your main your main account uh, and you can just put the money into that account. So, you know, a really simple rule of thumb is you said 30 to 40% of our profit. If you don't know what your profit's going to be, it's almost always better to be conservative, I find. So even if that means putting aside, you know, a quarter of whatever you bring in, you know, that's 25%, $25 for every $100 you bring in, at least at the end of the year, when, the, when it comes to paying tax, if you're more conservative and you save more tax throughout the year, chances are you can keep a bit of that for next year or you can roll it over into the next year as a safety buffer for your business. So you're better off being conservative and saving more than not saving at all or just winging it and seeing what happens. So those are some great tips there, mate. The next category is something that we talked about last time as well, which is this kind of work from home movement. And this applies to basically everyone that works from home, whether you're a sole trader, you're a business, or if you're an employee. So Everyone's been at home this year, basically across the country, mostly in Victoria and New South Wales. But there are some specific, I guess, rules around this and what you might be eligible to claim at tax time. So can you just share maybe uh, any of the tips that you have here for for the work from home movement? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So there's, I mean, the easiest way to think about it is when you are working from home, the ATOs tried to make this as simple as possible, particularly over this COVID period. So there's 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 two main methods that you can use. One that's been around for a while um, and the other is a booster to that, the first one. So the, the fixed rate method basically allows you to claim a lower amount, so 52 cents an hour for each hour worked at home. And what that kind of looks at taking care of is say gas and electricity or declining value of furniture as well for items that you're using at home that are kind of difficult to track. If you use the increased rate of 80 cents an hour, which you can definitely for FY21 when you come to file your return this year, you're actually saying, okay, I've been working at home. Oh, there's there's a, a number of hours, whether that be on a full-time basis or a couple of days a week. And there's a lot of items I may not necessarily have taken care to track during the year, which is which is very common. But I want to use that increased rate of 80 cents per hour to give me still a substantial deduction at tax time for the cost of things that I've used at home. So I think to, to break down which method is most effective for different groups, I would say the key point is that if you use what we call the shortcut method, which is the increased one of, of 80 cents an hour, that's really relevant, like we said, for people that haven't kept, say, really detailed records around what they might be spending on. Um, it might be for people that don't necessarily have a huge amount of spendings um they've just been set up they've got a work laptop that they've been provided with and they are just working from home using that which is completely fine as well so there's no cap necessarily on how many hours you can claim for working from home like obviously need to be realistic about it but you can say whether that's 30 40 hours that's completely fine the other other thing that i would kind of add to that is the fixed rate method which is the lower one may be relevant to you if you're paying large amounts um, that are relevant for work, say, on phone and internet expenses um, or, say, other items that you've bought specifically that you couldn't claim on the increased rate method, only because you want to just 
basically work out what gives you the best result. So this is, once again, something you could chat to your tax agent about. But given that 80 cents an hour is, is, is definitely good and it's a substantial increase to the previous one, but in saying that, say you've got a couple of grand, the easiest way to think about it is a couple of grand at the end of the year that you have been spending on whether it's mobile or internet, it may still work out that there's a better result in claiming the lower rate and claiming those as specific expenses in your return. Right. So you basically have a choice between 80 cents an hour flat and 52 cents an hour, but then also being specific. Is that right? So yeah, 52 cents an hour, but also being specific around other things. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. So so the 52 cents an hour is one that's been there for a while. And that that looks at things that are difficult to track around, say, gas and electricity or decline in furniture that you're using at home. But on top of that, you can claim, yeah, say, phone and internet expenses and other things that you cannot claim if you use the 80 cents per hour. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay. So you could get more if you actually look at what's included in the shortcut method. You could actually get more if you go outside of that and you use the fixed rate method because you think, no, I actually did spend a lot on my mobile phone. I had some big expenses. I only use my internet for for work or, or whatever the case may be. I don't know. Yeah, that's where, okay, you should actually look into it. Cool. I like it, mate. Okay, so we're up to number eight. We're making good progress here. Number eight is the sharing economy. You know, we've got a lot of people, I know you've worked with a lot of people that, um, you know, drive for Uber, they work on Airtasker, they do all these hobbies or not even hobbies, just extra, you know, side hustle money that they get on the side from working whatever way that they can basically to fill in the time they're going to be Instead of watching the footy, they might be out driving for Uber and making a few dollars anyway. So how about for the sharing economy? This is a relatively new thing. Um, A lot of people will be filing their tax returns for the first time thinking about, well, what do I actually do Um, and what can I do with this kind of new money-making machine that I have on the site? Definitely. And I'm such a big fan of the sharing economy as a whole. I think it's such a creative way for people, particularly during like COVID as well, to build income on the side. So I think... First and foremost, we, we see like a number of different, I suppose, circumstances for people that are either driving for Uber and, and doing another business on the side is a, is a really common one that we see. What we talked about GST uh, a little earlier, but what is really important to know is if you are doing rideshare, so regardless of what platform that's on, um, you do need to be registered for GST, importantly. And if you do have any other business income that you are earning as well, if you're doing rideshare, then you need to be registered for GST for for all of those businesses, basically. So to be filing a business activity statement um, that looks at total income, um, regardless of what percentage is just from the rideshare platform. So that's that's a big one that doesn't affect everyone, but it is quite specific to rideshare. The so a second point too is, and I, I want to emphasize um, the one around, say, Airbnb and other rental platforms, is just look at, one, you do need to start, um, if you haven't already, uh, you need to be disclosing this income as, as rent or whatever else you might be generating. <laughs> I think it's it's becoming more of a, a hot topic with the ATO. There's a lot more kind of information that is being shared from the platforms with them. So, I mean, just be on top of what it is you need to be disclosing. And yeah, basically the easiest way of doing so because it's it's a bit of a nightmare to for the ATO to ask the question a couple of years later and for you to have to work through if it's across a couple of different platforms either. So you might use, say, Stays and Airbnb, kind of reconcile that income and then to declare it at that point, you want to be doing it timely. One, to be paying any tax that's due. Um, so there's not, say, penalties and interest on balances, but also just because it's so much easier from a record-keeping perspective to stay up to date rather than being forced to backtrack 
So, yeah, I, I suppose they're two quick ones. But as I said, I love the sharing economy and I think it's um, not only here to stay, but it's going to get bigger and bigger as well. For sure it is, yeah. And, um, you know, Airtasker, which is a company that's Australian-born, listed on the ASX not too long ago, follows uh, Freelancer, which is another company that listed on the ASX quite a while ago. These businesses are becoming more and more popular. We even have things like high pages for tradies where they can pick up extra work. You know, these sharing economy is basically about unlocking the, the supply. So whether that's, you know, a seat on a, a, you know, a seat in a car or, or a room in a house for Airbnb, it's unlocking that supply and then meeting that with demand and the platforms effectively facilitate that. But it is a source of income. If you're making money, you're making money. And you'd rather split some of your, your profit with the ATO than incur 100% of the loss on a property that's sitting vacant. So the next one, which is number nine, second from last, which is just around offsets. We talked about offsets last time. There have been some changes proposed to some offsets, but I'm guessing there's not much to go on here, Jacob, but I could be mistaken because offsets, if I'm not mistaken, automatically apply to people's um, tax returns? Yeah, I, I mean, overall, exactly. So I, I think the distinction that we talked about in the last podcast around what an offset is, say, in comparison to a general deduction is important. So an offset, you're getting the full value of the cash back. All I mean by that is if we're talking about the, the low and middle income tax offset, you might, say, get up to a bit over a grand back at tax time, which is awesome. You don't, As we said, you don't need to do anything specific. The ATO, when they putting together your notice of assessment, we'll look at how much income you've earned for the year and whether or not it's relevant and we'll boost your refund with that offset um, if it is relevant, which is which is cool. Yeah, in comparison, deductions are, as we said, just re- helping to reduce your taxable income and therefore you're only getting, say, the tax rate that you're exposed. All I mean by that is whether it's, say, you're sitting at a 30%, uh, 37% tax rate, you might, for every dollar you spend, get a, a chunk of uh, money back for that as a deduction and tax time. So that's that's the big one that I wanted to come back to because we still see so many questions on that. And the other one, I mean, in terms of, say, franking credits and things, I think they're another, uh, basically a, a neat way to still, in terms of an offset, um, overall get cash back at tax time, making sure that you are correctly reporting, say, frank dividends that you've had and the, the tax effect of those where you are getting the, the franking credit back effectively uh, works the same way as an offset, given that it's dollar for dollar. So any franking credits that you do have, make sure you're correctly reporting those in your return to get full benefit too is, is super important. Yeah, the franking credits piece is something that always kind of confuses a lot of people, but basically the tax is paid on your behalf by the companies that you've invested in if they're eligible companies. And if you're an eligible shareholder being an Australian resident and holding the shares for a certain amount of time, these can be super, super generous. I'm not going to you know, there's no ifs, buts, or maybes about it. If you are someone who is looking for income from your investments, franking credits are kind of this strange concoction in Australia, imputation credits. I think there's only two countries in the world that offer imputation, aka franking credits. And this is something that goes onto your, your, against your tax file number. And if you've set up your, your share registry or your, your holdings correctly, you should be able to see these um, when you file, or you should at least make sure that they're on there. Because they're super important, they boost your your taxable your, your taxable income, so or your assessable income, and so make sure that it's on there and you're not missing out. Jacob, now there's a bit of a mystery for number ten. I just said to you when we we're planning for this episode, I just said anything else. So kind of anything goes for number ten tax time tips. Um, this tenth bucket. So 
what would be under anything else? Is there anything else you can think of that would help our listeners understand what they can do at tax time? Yeah, my biggest one, and and sorry if this is a bit of a boring one, and I think it's just so important, is to not think of tax time just at tax time. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I think that is such a common, whether it's Aussies in general or yeah, just people the way they are, they, they come to tax time and they think, okay, what's relevant to me? And they're kind of working backwards from there to make sure whether it's they're looking at what money they've spent during the year to kind of come up with their deductions. They're looking at trying to reconcile income that they may have had on the side that they know they need to declare, but they haven't really been keeping track of. They get to tax time and all of a sudden, whether or not it's a mad rush or it's just a a need to get a return in, um, it's working through that information then. My biggest tip is to try as much as you can to be doing that during the year. One, it makes sure I suppose the biggest one is that you're not missing out on any relevant deductions because you've just forgotten or you haven't got to-date records. And then the other one is, yeah, in terms of all your additional filings that you might have, say, as a small business, as we chatted about, it's a lot easier to be doing those timely rather than getting to tax time, going to see a tax agent and working backwards from there. So, yeah, think about tax time, whether or not that's a couple of times during the year. Maybe I'm just a tax man and I'm super keen and yeah, think about it more than I probably should. <laughs> but that's my biggest tip. The other one is, and, oh, and I know we've chatted about this before off air, but just be really kind of aware of conversations that you might have with a mate at a barbecue or even at the pub around, say, structures, whether that's a, a self-managed super fund or whether it's you've both got similar businesses, but he's set up a different way to yours and you're kind of thinking through, okay, oh, hey, is there something relevant um, to me based on that? I think just be yeah, just be mindful that a lot of the structures that you do set up, specific or otherwise, have kind of ongoing compliance that can be costly. So only setting up a structure where it's relevant, I think, is, is really important. Of course, um, there's a number of different things that kind of mean that it may be relevant. So it may not just be tax, it might be asset protection and, and other things. So I think get the right advice there, of course, but don't be kind of cookie cutter and approach to say, oh, his business sounds like mine. I probably should follow that um, and, and set up the same thing. I think we see that so commonly um, where people have the wrong structure um, and have then yeah, additional compliance because of that. Or they haven't set up anything when they should have just because someone else that they were chatting to hadn't either um, and they were both in the dark um, and they both just rolled on the basis of that. So get some specific um, knowledge and, and advice before you jump into a business um, that's relevant to you rather than just um, general that you've heard off a mate. Yeah, so it's such, a, such an important thing. I So this isn't, I know this we're, we're talking like businesses and people with side hustles and all that sort of stuff, but um you know, I've heard of a lot of people getting into um, self-managed super funds, SMSFs, and it's kind of, it's one of those things where I guess at the end of the day, if you have an SMSF, I think a lot of people get into it and they think, oh, um, you know, this is going to be tax advantage. It's going to be make me help me invest better, this SMSF, but it really doesn't turn out well because sooner or later, you know, things get really complicated, things get expensive and you think, well, why won't I just with an industry super fund or something like that? So definitely something for people to consider, but at the same time, make sure you get the right advice and also understand the incentives of the people that are giving you the advice to get into a structure like that. Okay, Jacob, this has been 10 um, great, absolutely fantastic categories for people to think about at tax time. I think coming into this, I was expecting to have 10 tips, but I think you've given us three, six, nine, uh, 11, 13, 15, about let's say 25 different tips for, for listeners. So 
it's an awesome list. I know people can go and find out more at uh, AirTax. I'll put all the links in the show notes so you can visit um, Jacob's website with PwC there, AirTax by PwC. And yeah, again, thanks for joining me on the show, Jacob. I know you've got a lot of work to do around tax time with businesses and PAYG professionals. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have Jacob back on another episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.